Thank you very much, Laura. As we think about interacting with God's Word, I trust that you approach God's Word with a surrendered heart of being eager to hear and to apply. Take a few moments in silence and you share with the Lord your desire to be sensitive as we interact with a portion of Mark's gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be doers of your word. Those who live in sensitivity to you with Christ as our life and your spirit at work within us, moment by moment each day. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Would you go to a restaurant where those employed there, along with the owner, are known to lie, to cheat? They have food fights in the kitchen. You can hear them taking place. And they don't even eat at the restaurant. Would you go to a doctor who has verbal fights with his nurses and some patients? He prescribes drug for, drugs for his patients, but he refuses to use them for himself for the same condition. Would you go to a mechanic who treats you fairly, honestly, who treats his employees very, very well, pays them a fair wage? The character of an individual impacts what they do in action and leaves a marked impression upon others. Mark's gospel reveals the character, the identity, the being of Christ, and the action which sprang from that character, that identity, that being. His being, his character, his identity resulted in a strong public ministry. In a few moments, we'll read some from Mark chapter 3. But remember, as we go through the gospel of Mark, that Jesus is being revealed for who he is and then what he does. And some things that we have already covered in Mark's gospel. Jesus is unique. He's one of a kind. He is the good news. He's a person. He is God's son. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He has a father who is pleased with him. He is yielded to God's spirit. He is able to resist Satan. He is intimately related to the kingdom of God being near because he's the king of the kingdom of God, which comes out later on. He teaches with authority. He commands an evil spirit to come out of a man. He has authority over sickness And over demons, he's able to forgive. And because he's able to forgive, he demonstrates that he is God. He knew what the teachers of the law were thinking without even asking. He healed the paralytic to show that he had the authority to forgive sins. He had authority to call Levi and to have a feast with Levi in his home and then call Levi to follow him. He had authority to disband fasting. And not only disband fasting but also to say he is the new wine. He had authority over the Sabbath because he was Lord of the Sabbath. He had authority to heal on the Sabbath. And he had authority to forgive sins. 
and so on. Keep in mind that as we discuss the Gospel of Mark, what we have revealed concerning Christ remains true. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, reading together verses 7 through 11. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because the crowd, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Now as we think about this passage, keep in mind what had taken place prior to this passage that in chapter 2, 1 through 12, we find that he healed a paralytic. He forgave the paralytic's sins. And the religious leaders were thinking, he's blaspheming because he took it upon himself to forgive sins. We find also he calls Levi, a tax collector, a hated man, to be a follower of his. And then what does he do? He goes and has a feast in Levi's house and invites other tax collectors and sinners are also present. And then he disbands fasting. He says his disciples don't need to fast because the new wine, he is the new wine, is present. And then he turns around and he heals on the Sabbath day. And in each account, what does he do? He runs into trouble with the religious leaders And verse 6 of Mark 3 says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. It is in that context that Jesus is withdrawing with his disciples. The idea of withdrawing is to move to a remote area. And apparently along the lake because he's still in Capernaum or in that area. But he's attempting to get away from people. For a period of time. Used only once in Mark's gospel, but in Matthew it's used repeatedly of Jesus withdrawing. Again, attempting to get away from people. Remember, they're plotting to kill him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, but what happens? A large crowd follows. Understand the crowd here, he says, a large crowd followed or came to him from Galilee, the immediate area. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea and Jerusalem. 
That's further south, some 50 miles south. They would have crossed the Jordan River, came up the east side of the Jordan River, then recrossed the Jordan River and came to Jesus at Capernaum along the lake. We find that, and they would have been primarily Jews. We find that people also came from Idumea, and we find that there, those would have been a mixture of some Jews, some Gentiles. And that would have been 120 miles south of where Jesus was at this time. People also came from across the Jordan. That would have been on the east side of the Jordan, coming to the Sea of Galilee. What are they coming for? Jesus. And then we find people also came from Tyre and Sidon to the north, and they would have been primarily Gentiles. They heard about Jesus, all he was doing. We don't know how many people were present, but we know that there was a large crowd. His reputation went far beyond that of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had said in chapter 1 and verse 7, and this was his message, this is John speaking, after me will come one more powerful than I. And Jesus' ministry was much more extensive than that of John the Baptist. So a large crowd is coming for the purpose of ministry. That is for him to minister to them. I want you to keep in mind that as people come, that Jesus' primary motivation and his primary ministry was not to heal, but to preach and to teach. Look at chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Look in chapter 1 and verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. Verses 38 and 39 of chapter 1. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. So many gathered that there was no room, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. And then chapter, 13, or chapter 2 and verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. Jesus' primary ministry was one of teaching But because he did heal, people came to him in large numbers. And notice in verse 9 it says, because of the crowd, he told the disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep people from crowding him. The idea of crowding him is mobbing him. He's not standing there and he can keep people their distance. They would be mobbing him. And Jesus says to his disciples, no, have a boat ready for me. 
I want you to picture a doctor in our day and age. We'll let him be at uh, Geisinger North. And his office, for sake of my illustration, is going to be right off the lobby when you walk into Geisinger North. And he finishes treating a patient. And he opens the door and he sees the whole lobby is full and the whole parking lot is full and they're all wanting to see him. He slams the door shut and says, I need my space. Now Jesus has been ministering. People from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, Tyre, Sidon are mobbing him because they want to be healed. Jesus says, have a boat ready for me. If he gets in a boat, he can at least push off off from the shore. It says, for he had healed many in verse 10 of chapter 3, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. I don't know about you, but if you've ever experienced any illness to any extent, you anticipate healing. Oh, we get a cold. We know that'll go away. But have something long-term that goes on year after year. And there's someone that can heal. Here's a man who could heal. He is the son of God. He is deity. He is the good news. He's the one who teaches with authority. What are they doing? They're pushing forward to touch him. We can just touch him. There would be healing. And then verse 11 says... Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Remember, he did cast out evil spirits in the past. Evil spirits see him, they fall down, but notice what they cry. You are the Son of God. In chapter 1, In verse 25, Jesus said to a man who is possessed by an evil spirit, be quiet. Now keep in mind what is taking place here. If someone spoke another person's name that indicated that they had authority or had something over them. So when the evil spirits are saying, you are the son of God, the spirits are implying we have something over Jesus. It's kind of like a parent saying, Jeremiah Marvin. Mom and dad say that, Jeremiah better perk up. Because they're saying we have authority over him. When a parent says, Ashley Renee Brubaker, she better listen. Because they're implying their authority. So when the evil spirits or saying, you are the Son of God. They're implying that they have something over Christ. But what does Christ do? He gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. He's stating, I have authority over you. And we'll look at that in just a few moments as far as Christ's authority. As you look at this passage and putting it together, you have the ill 
the feverish, the crippled, pushing and grabbing at Jesus to be healed. The Pharisees are watching for an opportunity to find fault with him. I don't know about you, but Jesus faced, if you want to use the term stress, in a very great manner. Remember, he is human, fully human, but also fully God. Suppose Daryl, as a PA, treats 100 patients tomorrow. I'm sure she would come home to her family and say, I'm weary, I'm tired, just leave me alone. I need some space. Jesus has been healing, has been dealing with demons, people who were possessed by demons. He is at the point of dying in the sense that people are trying to find a way to kill him. He wants to withdraw, but it doesn't pan out that way. His life was hectic. At the end of a day, he didn't say, I'm God, I don't mind anything, I'm not tired tonight. He get tired, he get weary, like any other human. And Lindbergh says, The life I've chosen as wife and mother entails a whole caravan of complications. It involves food and shelter, meals, planning, marketing, bills, and making the ends meet in a thousand ways. It involves not only the butcher and the baker, the candlestick maker, but the countless other experts to keep my modern house with its modern simplifications, electricity, plumbing, refrigerator, gas stove, dishwasher, radios, cars, and numerous other labor-saving devices functioning properly. It involves health, doctors, dentists, appointments, medicine, vitamins, trips to the drugstore. It involves education, spiritual, intellectual, physical, schools, school conferences, carpools, extra trips for basketball, orchestra practice, tutoring, camps, camp equipment, and transportation. It involves clothes, shopping, laundry, cleaning, mending, letting skirts down and sewing buttons on, or finding someone else to do it. It involves friends, my husband's, my children's, my own, an endless arrangement together, or to get together. Letters, invitations, telephone calls, transportation, hither and yon, end of quote. That's one lady's perspective on being a mother. What was Jesus' perspective on being the Son of God in healing as he did? The more Jesus healed, the more he cared, the busier he became. What's the point of this passage? I think the passage demonstrates his humanity, his power over sickness and demon or evil spirits, 
thus confirming his being the Son of God. He's human. He wanted to withdraw. Don't treat Jesus as one who never get tired, who never had difficulty. But at the same time, he was God, who displayed power over sickness and evil spirits. Now, some possible applications to this passage. Jesus did not seek the limelight or advertise or offer great programs. His being expressed in his actions were sufficient. I want you to think about that. We have no indication that Jesus ever had anything in the radio to promote himself. There's never email sent out. He never got an ad in the newspaper. He was who he was. And he lived out who he was. And that was sufficient. Now, in way of application, I would pose a question. Do we need to offer good services, good programs, good activities to attract people? It seems to me as I study scripture that the impact of men, husbands, fathers who are loving God and who are changing speaks of Christ. As women, wives, mothers love God and are changing, that speaks volumes of Christ and what he can do. As there are marriages which picture Christ in the church, that speaks volumes of Christ and who he is and his transforming power. As parents are teaching and equipping their children, speaks volumes of Christ and who he is and what he can do. As employees, employers, citizens and so on are walking with God day by day, that speaks volumes of Christ and what he can do. I'm not saying programs are wrong or whatever. But the transforming lives of people. I say transforming because it's a process. If you've been married for more than two days, I better say more than a year, you still have struggles and you still have victories. But it's a process of growing. You have children. After two years of having children, they are all, not all of a sudden angels, and you as parents never struggle again. You still struggle, but we're in the process of growing in Christ. The way Christ desires for his being, his identity, his character to be manifested today is through his followers whose lives are being transformed day by day. Just as Jesus transformed people, he wants to transform us today. Jesus did not promote himself, his being, and actions were sufficient. Shouldn't our being in our daily life be sufficient to attract people to the gospel? The gospel of Christ changing us has a profound impact. Our dependency at times upon programs and methods should challenge us to stop 
and carefully evaluate churches, families, marriages, and our lives. Are they reflecting Christ at work in us? Are we delighting in Christ? Are we living free lives as we discussed the last few weeks? Whether people will listen to the gospel of Christ that know you will be dependent upon how you live. Not on programs. Not on ministries, and there's nothing wrong with them. But the transforming lives that we have. Another application There is no need for believers to fear Satan, demons, or evil spirits. Christ gave them orders in this passage and provided ultimate victory through the cross and the resurrection. Verse 12, but he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. And as he prays for the church in Ephesus... We'll start with verse 18 for context's sake. Ephesians 1 and verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power that is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead the power that seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also the one to come. Notice there in verse 20, the power he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand, then 21, far above all rule and authority, power, and dominion. As you compare that with chapter 6, he's talking about the spirit world. That when Christ came from the dead, he ascended to heaven. The power of demons and evil spirits was broken. Now go over to another passage that parallels that in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews 2, he's talking about Christ and what Christ has done, Christ taking upon himself human form. But in Hebrews 2 and verse 14, Hebrews 2 and verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he, referring to Christ, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So that he might, by his death, destroy him who holds the power of death. Please understand that Satan, his cohorts, demons are defeated. Their ultimate 
defeat is going to be demonstrated in the future, but in the present they seek to convince us that they're not defeated. But they are. Why could Jesus command the spirits not to tell who he was? Because of who he was. He was over them. And through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he obtained ultimate victory over the spirit world. You know, sometimes we think about what has happened in our world. We may talk about the devil working and so on. Let's live as though he is defeated. But he hasn't given up the battle because his ultimate binding doesn't come to the future. But in the present, he is defeated. So this morning as I walked around the sanctuary and I was praying, as it relates to our times together today, I took some passages that deal with how God wants us to respond and passages that talk about Satan and his demons. And I claim victory because he's a defeated foe. And think about that in your day-by-day living. The enemy through Christ is defeated. Greater is the one who lives in you than he who is in the world. Not a third application. Just glory in Jesus Christ. Meditate upon him. Glory in Jesus. Who, he, who is he? He's the son of God. He's the good news. He's the one who teaches with authority. He's the one who casts out demons. He's the one who forgives sins. And on and on. Glory in him. Just fall in love with him for who he is. And then secondly, what he does. We tend to be like those we think about. If we think about God often, we think about Christ often. We tend to become like them. My encouragement is just glory in Christ. The restaurant that you go to is often determined by the people and how they treat you and the food they serve. The doctor that you you choose to go to depends upon how he treats you, how he treats those who work with him. The mechanic mechanic that you go to will also be determined to some extent by his ability how he treats you and how he treats other customers. Now think about Christ and who he is. He wants you to glory in him. I showered and I shaved. I adjusted my life or my tie. I got there and sat in a pew just in time, bowing my head in prayer as I closed my eyes. I saw the shoe of the man next to me touch on my own. I sighed. With plenty of room on either side, I thought, why must our souls touch? It bothered me, his shoe touching mine, but it didn't bother him much. A prayer began. Our father, I thought, this man with the shoes has no pride. They're dusty, worn and scratched, even worse. They're holes in the side. Thank you for blessing, the prayer went on. The shoe man said a quiet amen. 
I tried to focus on the prayer, but my thoughts were on his shoes again. Aren't we supposed to look our best when we come through that door? Well, this certainly isn't it, I thought, glancing toward the door. The prayer was ended and the song, songs of praise began. The shoe man was certainly very loud, sounding proud as he sang. His voice lifted the rafters. His hands were raised up. The Lord could surely hear the shoe man's voice from the sky. It was time for the offering, and what I threw in was steep. I watched as the shoe man reached into his pocket so deep. I saw what he pulled out, what the shoe man put in. Then I heard a soft clink when the silver hit tin. The sermon really bored me to tears, and that's no lie. It was the same for the shoe man, for tears fell from his eyes. At the end of the service, as is the custom here, we must greet new visitors and show them all good cheer. But I felt moved somehow and wanted to meet the shoe man. So after the closing prayer, I reached over and shook, shook his hand. He was old and his skin was dark and his hair was truly a mess. But I thanked him for coming, for being our guest. He said, my name's Charlie. I'm glad to meet you, my friend. There were tears in his eyes, but he had a large, wide grin. Let me explain, he said, wiping tears from his eyes. I've been coming here for months, and you're the first to say, hi. I know my appearance is not like all the rest, but I really do care to always look my best. I always clean and polish my shoes before my very long walk. But by the time I get here, they're dirty and dusty like chalk. My heart filled with pain, and I swallowed to hide my tears. As he continued to apologize for daring to sit so near, he said, When I get here, I know I must look a sight. But I thought if I could touch you, maybe our souls might unite. I was silent for a moment, knowing whatever was said would pale in comparison. I spoke from my heart, not my head. Oh, you touched me, I said, and taught me in part that the best of any man is what is found in his heart. The rest I thought the shoe man will never know. Like just how thankful I really am that his dirty old shoe touched my soul. Jesus repeatedly touched souls. He wants us to do the Likewise, in our daily life, as we interact with people. As we think about that, a few announcements as we close. Our service tonight, an opportunity to hear what happened in the DR, listening to them as they share concerning their DR trip. Then Wednesday night, a DVD, Fossils and Flood, What's the connection for adults, teens, and children? And then we'll break into some groups. Keep in mind, Touching Souls, Corn Roast, August 21st, next Sunday night. And that's at Lloyd and Gloris Noggles. And also, in way of encouraging others, Josh and Lindsay Grigo had a baby boy. If you want to know all the details, I don't remember them all. But, uh, you know, it's a guy thing. You ladies would remember everything. So I just touched souls by trying to remember that a baby was born. 
The women do it by remembering all the details. Danny has something he wants to share. <laughs> 